0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host, Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honored today to be joined by Bernard Desmet. Bernard is a renowned coach, leadership trainer and facilitator whose expertise is in unlocking the power in teams so that they can access the collective capacity and capability to achieve the greatest things possible. He's also the author of two books, Team Better Together and Inside Out Leadership. And in today's discussion, we're going to go a little bit into this team better together. And what he talks about is the five disciplines of high performance teams. And he's got some interesting plays there about the different dynamics and paradoxes that teams can find themselves into. So very much looking forward to today's conversation. Bernard, please do introduce yourself to the audience Give a little flavour of that very rich background of yours and tell us what led you to be with us today.
1: Lovely thanks, Megan. Thanks very much for having me on your show and greetings to your audience. Um, I always find this such a, an interesting question, you know where where does one begin? I look at how I've got here in in a life two halves, the the first spent in South Africa. Uh, for the uh, first 38 years of my life. And uh, I refer to that half as the, the bittersweet half, um, the tension that I was uh, brought up in and living in at the height of uh, the apartheid era. And I could never in my own mind as a young child and to the day we left 22 years ago reconcile the tension between the, the privileged existence I led and the, the pain and suffering so many of my fellow countrymen had to endure, the intimacy of my lifestyle and yet such injustice uh, across so many others' lives. So it took me 38 years to realise the um, what I refer to the gifts of the essence of Africa I've brought with me and who have shaped who I am and what I do. And uh, the second half is the blessed half uh, in as much as having spent 22 years in Australia doing work I love with people I like in the way I want. So that a little bit about how I've got there. There's, there's more to that. If if you are interesting interested in reading a bit about my story, I wrote a, uh, an article on, I titled it The, the Story I've Never Shared Before, uh, which uh, gives you a little bit more insight in uh, some of the experiences and perspectives I have having lived in, um, in what was a, um, a barbaric system. But here I am. So you're calling it how it is, barbaric.
0: I'm going to use the word unfair, inequitable. I can use more severe words as well, racist. How does that shape who you are today?
1: You know, Mick, they were, it's so interesting because this has taken me time to distill. They refer to the the essence of Africa. They're three African expressions that have deeply shaped who I am, having one can never divorce oneself of one's heritage. The first of these expressions is the, the Zulu word, or greeting and it's siabona. And siabona means literally, I see you, and by seeing you I bring you into being. And you know what that's taught me is just the the deep respect and legitimacy so important we hold each other with an in. The the other which which may be known to you is the causa word Ubuntu and Literally, again, Ubuntu means we are because you are, and since you are definitely I am. So said differently, it's it's I am who I am thanks to you. So the deep interdependence with which we exist and work and achieve together was another of the gifts I referred to. And the third is the greeting when we leave one another, which is hamburgashly. And hamburgashly means going peace and prosperity and stay safe on your journey. And it's the the deep wish and care we, uh, we bring to one another. So, you know, I've realized in shaping the work I do and how I find deep deep meaning and fulfillment in that work has been very much shaped by what I refer to the essence of Africa.
0: I love this and I love that you're able to take something out of that experience that then lasts with you for a long time. The gifts of Africa, Africa the beauty of Africa. And there's many kind of things that come from Africa in terms of Shaping the way that, that I think as well, in terms of one of my favorite African proverbs, is uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And then when we, when we bring this together with Bono and with Ubuntu, that is about co creation that I don't exist unless you see me, and you don't exist unless I see you and hold space for you. And how do you then bring that into what you do now in
1: Australia? Well, I, you know, the work I do with leaders and teams, you know, essentially helping them access their resourcefulness and, and helping teams and leaders live and lead with greater fulfillment and, and impact. You, you know, my deepest sense of purpose is I, I was born to, to awaken the soul of leadership. And I, I believe, you know, there's a, a lot of soulless leadership happening out there. Leaders, you know, wandering aimlessly, followers wandering aimlessly. Um, and that's not to say uh, this is my view. And uh, there's so much potential when we allow ourselves to access, you know, who we are, not not necessarily just about what we do. When we give ourselves permission to access who we are, um, infinite possibilities arise. But, you know, this, this doesn't make life easier. It just makes life more possible. Um, so it's very much the sort of guiding light in, uh, in the work I do, particularly around teams where, you know, there's there's this abundance of collective capacity and capability when teams make the choice to transition, to flourish. It never astounds me what is possible. So uh, I'm, I'm deeply privileged in, in, in the work I do, deeply. It's really pleasing to hear you
0: say that because we, I think, many of us do have privilege every day that we don't have gratitude for, and I can see that you're you're deeply uh, gracious around that. I want to unpack that word soulless. I don't believe that any leader turns up and goes right. I'm going to be soulless today. I'm going to be a bad boss. I'm going to treat people like they're invisible. I'm going to drift. I'm going all of these things that might come along with that word soulless. Where do you think people go wrong? How do you think this emerges?
1: Yeah, interesting, interesting. There's many factors that uh, that I believe impact this. But if if we look at it, if we strip it down, make eight and a half billion of us uh, share at least one thing in common, and that is to live a fulfilled life, um, to live a fulfilled way of being and what I mean by a way of being is how I show up to the world how I the lens through which I experience the world and the the narrative we hold ourselves in we that's all we are we're a story and when leaders come to realize uh, the story they hold themselves in may not serve them to, to live a fulfilled way of life and helping them recraft and reauthor their story, then they're able to access you know, their soulfulness, their, their greatness and, and bring the best of their human beingness to others. And that's all leadership is. It's just accessing. It's the I've always said, you know, leadership, It's we've all got the skills to lead. It's Just the permission we may not be giving ourselves.
0: There's two things there. I like this word giving permission for sure. And I think in many respects, the person that holds us back is ourselves for sure. And then the second part I want to bring up is perspective. I also want to bring this back to the Sower and Ubuntu. I believe it's Cooley was was once famous for saying, this is about perspective here, that I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. So it's like a projected perspective that people are walking around with these stories that they tell themselves, to use your words, about the way others perceive them instead of connecting to who they really are. How does that sit with you?
1: Yeah, it's so true, you know, and this is the thing. In the work I do, and this is true for all of us to varying extents, when we realize how much of our sense of identity, worth and value is in what others think and feel about us, we render ourselves powerless. And part of this journey is is taking back that authority to determine the standards by which we judge ourselves and not allow others to judge us. If we come back, and I know it's a strong word when we talk about soulless. It's soulless when my sense of value and worth, I hold it in terms of what you think of me and about me. I'm just inviting pain if I live dependent on what you think. Now, of course, it matters what you think, but I don't bring that into what I hold and see myself through. I look to what you think as learning, not identity.
0: Yeah, caring what someone else thinks is, is, is part of caring. It's part of being caring. It's part of being compassionate. You don't want to feel like you've upset every person that you've ever met in your life. But why put so much value on your own identity connected to that? Yeah. So what tips can you give to our audience? If there's people out there that are listening going, OMG, this is me. How does someone break that chain and connect back to your words, who they really are?
1: If we think about this and in, in the the deep ontological training in my teacher um, Alan Sealer if we look at this as human beings we exist in in three domains language mood and body we're never not in language and the six linguistic acts we live in, you know, we, we listen in language, we think in language, we speak in language, we act in language. And I just want to make a distinction between two of the six linguistic acts, the assessments and assertion and assessments. We never not in assessment 24-7. We're in assessment of ourselves and others, the beliefs we have of ourselves and others, the opinion, the assumptions we make. And the the starting point to this is to simply observe the assessments we hold ourselves in and observe to what extent these may serve us. And what am I taking care of believing I'm not good enough? What am I taking care of? that I believe that I'm going to be found out in the imposter you know, syndrome I live within and the anxiety I bring. Um, so my my point, the starting point is to be a better observer of the assessments we hold ourselves in. And without judgment, ju- just observe them. Don't, don't damn oneself or shaming oneself that we have this uh, belief of ourselves, just observe it and be asking, for what sake am I holding this belief? How, how does it serve me? And that's that's a powerful place. And it's a it's the source of deep transformational work when we give ourselves permission. And you when this is brought to the collective and leadership teams, you can imagine when the collective story is moving to provide a context and a frame that serves the team accessing its collective capacity, it's powerful. It's powerful, Meg.
0: I want to unpack it a little bit, play it back to you in my own words and see if I've got it. And this this assessment part is really interesting. We talk a lot about unconscious bias. And when we talk about unconscious bias, we're usually, that's usually a projection. We've seen someone in the street, We make assumptions about who they are, what they do, are they a good person, are they a bad person, should I be friends, should I be worried about them, all this kind of stuff. So unconscious bias, unfortunately, lives with us. It is actually a bit of human nature, unfortunately, but it, it does live with us. What I'm hearing with you here is the assessment part is almost bias of yourself.
1: Yes, it's certainly a perspective and it it could be biased to one's disadvantage or one's own advantage. What we don't see, and let me just bring back this distinction, we don't see the distinction between assessments and assertions. And assessments are just perspectives, opinions. Assertions are statements of truth. And we think our thoughts are the truth and we don't see that distinction. And and when we see it, then we give ourselves permission to start reauthoring the story. I keep reminding people, you know, whilst we never knock an assessment, we are not our thoughts. We just have thoughts, just like people say, "I'm angry." Well, who's the I in "I'm angry"? How can I be angry? And I know that sounds paradoxical. What we say, because when when I don't see the distinction between the subject and object. I become the anger. What we're actually saying, I'm recognizing I'm in a mood of anger. And when I see that I'm not my mood, I'm just in a mood. I create the space to then start shifting my mood.
0: All right. So this is where I want to go with this assessment assertion part. And now we've got a new element in it, which is emotion as well. So the, the assessment is something that we're telling ourselves about ourselves. It might be, who am I, to, a question. It could be, oh, I'm not good enough to lead. Who am I to lead? I'm I'm terrible at giving presentations, what, whatever the case may be. We're telling ourselves a story based on some kind of assessment and you're saying to, and it could be emotion, it could be, anger, as you said. And what I'm hearing from you is to stop and observe where did that story or emotion come from? What triggered it? Is it serving me? And is it the truth? And when we question ourselves in that way, we can start rewriting the story. Go, well, actually that wasn't true. What is the truth? And now our assertion can turn into something that serves us better than the negative assertion that we're already thinking. How's that sit with you?
1: Perfectly. Let me give a very practical example. I've just completed an executive coaching program with this amazing person. And she, in yours and my assessment, would just be just the most successful, capable, um, epitomizes what leadership is and feels like. I was involved in the assignment. She uh, was promoted, a uh, significant promotion. And part of the assignment was to to help her assimilate into this new role. But she found herself being triggered and into deep, deep levels of anxiety, which, you know, beyond the normal levels you and I live with. And, and anxiety, I'm not talking about anxiety in, in a clinical sense. I'm talking about the, the, the natural, normal anxiety we experience in the day-to-day life. So this was profound. And we just started unpacking and we started collecting, inviting, collecting her story. And, you know, we live in story from from day dot, from when we can remember. And we we take that story with us. And a kind of long, long story short, what she came to see is the, the, the most predominant assessment she was living and has held herself in for all this time is that she never meets others' expectations of her. Not her parents felt, and this is just an assessment, but she didn't see, she felt it to be true, not just a perspective and challenge that perspective. And this, and she felt that about her family. She felt that about her boss. And what she came to realize is this fear of being, of letting them down because she's not good enough and she's not able to meet what they expect of her. And until such time as she came to deeply legitimize, you know, what she brings and who she's able to be and to offer, um, she's been able to fundamentally transform um, how she shows up in the world and that's simply because she's come to observe the story that just hasn't served her in some parts it has it's meant that she's been you know she strives you know to to be her best which is the the, the gift and anxiety but she's seen how it's paralyzed her
0: Yeah. The balance there is how much of that stress is pushing you to perform versus how much of that stress is holding you back. And to me, what it is, is it's an untested assumption that became her truth because of the story that was telling herself. Yeah. That's really interesting.
1: And this is, can you imagine when in in, in a team, when we, we hold our story to be the truth? Our story is our truth. It's not the truth. It's just my truth. And we become blind to mine and versus the. We think they're the same and they're not.
0: Yeah, good. My truth and the truth, and testing that. Yeah, this is really powerful stuff, uh, Bernard.
1: I'd love to know how, like in this case
0: of an untested assumption, people would seek validation, like to to try and break that. There is a lot of people that seek external validation instead of internal validation. What is the way to break this? Is it by going and asking her parents, "Hey, do I make you proud?" and and getting that external validation to dismiss that assumption or is it deep internal work to go well, actually it doesn't matter what matters is how i feel about myself
1: yeah this brings me to the third linguistic act which is about what we call declarations and a declaration is a statement of Truth that has a, a significant orientation to where I'm heading. So let me give you a very practical example. Assume you are my boss. At two o'clock this afternoon, I'm handing in my resignation. That's a declaration. Two o'clock, my life changes. Declarations are powerful, powerful speech acts. And let's let me come back to this example uh, of this this coachee, this exec. And there were a number of declarations. We we have to take responsibility for our Story, make we have to. And there's there's a process which we go through in terms of grounding these assessments um, because they just are story. And in the process of grounding these assessments, she came to a declaration that probably the declaration that has most profound impact on her was that I no longer give others authority over me. I determine the standards by which I judge myself. So she realized she wasn't dependent on what her parents thought. She was just open to what her parents thought. And what this declaration did, it, it she took back the, thor- the authority that she realized she handed it over to everyone by believing she never met the expectation. So this has been transformative for her to the point where she would never speak in public. She speaks to global audiences, guided and energized by anxiety, n- not paralyzed by it, because she's open to learn from mistakes and not fear living in the judgment of what others think. She's just open to learn more. Now, now, hold it. This is still difficult for her. My word. But what she's realized is that she has taken back, and I can't describe it any other way, she has taken back this authority that she no longer lives in what she believes others think of and about her. She's now just open to learn from that and not attach her identity to that.
0: Yes, I like that. So it's, there's still a learning cycle in there. It's not like you're shutting yourself off for the world and going, oh, I'm just me. You're still open to learn from others around you. But what you put true value on is how you value yourself and giving yourself permission and authority to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, shutting yourself from what others think is arrogance. Uh, narcissists do that. Narcissists do that.
0: All right. Very good. Now, I'd like to shift this through to teams, like so we've, we've spoken a lot so far about individuals. I'm going to ask this one to start with. What's the difference? We've just been talking a lot about individuals and the power of the individual and the stories that they tell themselves. What's the difference between a team and a group?
1: Wow! 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 That's a a lovely question. I'm I'm amazed how often when I start working with teams, how often interchangeably they refer themselves as a group and a team. The the distinctions are are, are subtle but significant, and these distinctions are are helpful until they're not. Make. But a group typically is in service of themselves. A, a, A team is in service of their stakeholders. Teams have a mandate; they've been commissioned with groups typically focus on what they do. Teams focus on why they do it. A group more typically works independently of one another. A team works interdependently. Groups are driven more by individual goals and KPIs. Teams come together interdependently to achieve what no other entity can, the, the collective performance goals. So there's a clear distinction between individual and collective goals. And probably the, the most significant distinction is in learning. In a group, learning's about my own individual knowledge and expertise. Teams look to build the collective wisdom. And th- this is about learning with and from one another. This is learning from their mistakes, from their successes. You know, and I don't want to paint... A group is as bad and wrong and a team is good and great. No, no, no. Gr- groups can achieve, but, but never what a team can. Let's say a group of scientists, one scientist may be researching diabetes and the other cancer. Do they have to be a team? No. Could they collaborate on research methodology and shared data that may be relevant? Absolutely. So they can still perform, but a group can never achieve what a team can. Teams exist to achieve what no other entity, no other individual or group can. The most predominant unit of organizational performance.
0: So what I'm hearing here, and please correct me if you don't like any of my kind of extrapolations here. I'm hearing in a group, there might be a flavor of what's in it for me and my own purpose and my own objectives, my own goals. In a team, it might be what's in it for us and it might be channeled towards a common purpose where everyone's working towards something that's bigger than themselves. And that in a team, people then start collectively learning together, collaborating to the point of interdependence where they realize that the sum of the result is bigger than some of the parts. So by by bringing every single individual's, I'm going to call them superpowers to the table. And then for me to go, oh, oh, Bernard, if you're really good at that, and I'm really good at this, we can create this together that wouldn't possibly be able to be created if the two of us didn't get together. Is that
1: it? Yeah. You no, know, beautiful beautiful, Mick. If, if we think about this, I suppose we can't talk about teams without distinguishing, you know, types of teams. And if we think there that, are that, that two elements that when paired manifest in the four types of teams, and that's relationships and results. Teams rise and fall on the quality of their working relationships and the impactfulness of their results. So would it help if I, I, I give you and your audience just the, the distinction between these four types of teams? So if we think ineffective dysfunctional results low relationships and low impact of results, it manifests in what I call combative teams. Now, these exist. Fortunately, they're in the absolute minority. But combative teams are just toxic, dysfunctional. they riddled with disregard, disrespect, distrust. I worked with such a team and this is a powerful lesson. I'm not sure why I committed to, but I did. This was a tech company listed. So um these teams, these teams exist. I worked with one, which um again, I'm not sure what possessed me to to commit to it. But the four founders in this company could not be in the same room. And the inevitable outcome was failure. And six months after we commenced, the company went um, into bankruptcy. So, you know, that's an inevitable outcome. Let's look to a team, less effective relationships, but can achieve a high impact in in, in their results. These teams I would call competitive teams that flounder. Um, In this instance... These are teams where the power is exercised over one another rather than with one another. There's competing for voice and value and vanity. Listen to the language. In a competitive team that flounders, it's all about I, me, and my and very little about you, us and our. And you know, floundering teams, they will get results in the short term. And that's it's it's just not sustainable. But they best operate at at less than the sum of their parts. So if we move up to Teams where there are functional relationships, effective relationships, but sometimes compromised results. These are what I call functioning teams that could be described as cohesive. This is an interesting distinction between a functioning team and a collaborative flourishing team because they feel that they function, they think they flourish. Um, What are some of the distinctions? And again, subtle, but significant. A functioning team shows up team sharp with a win-win mindset. And this is me and you winning. Flourishing teams show up with a win mindset. There's oneness to it. There's just us. If we look at another distinction, is cohesive teams move to the convergence of thinking. They move to the sameness of thinking. And again, these distinctions make, I'm always cautious, they're helpful until they're not. But flourishing teams move into the divergence of thinking. They value the difference of thinking. Here's the paradox. Collaboration has to dance with conflict. Conflict in the difference. Cohesive teams move to the sameness, more typically. So more of the energy is put into protecting, you know, so often one is referenced in cohesive functioning teams. The word used is harmony. It's really harm. It's it's such a harmony. I don't have a problem with harmony, but I do when it's used to disguise and avoid moving into conflict. The Another sort of profound distinction is, is what I refer to cohesive teams engaging in destructive content. They say yes when they mean no. Flourishing teams engage in constructive discontent. they always pushing the boundaries. They're always challenging the ways of thinking, the ways of doing. That's why flourishing teams are best in dealing with complexity. And through the This pandemic, it's flourishing teams that have flourished even more because the openness to new ways of thinking. Cohesive teams deal best with complicated issues, not complex issues. And probably just another, you know, the the, the risk, because the emphasis is on maintaining stability and harmony and relationships, the risk is that functioning, cohesive teams engaging in cordial hypocrisy. They don't necessarily say what they mean. Whereas flourishing, um, collaborative teams in, engaging in radical candor, and this is the, the work of Kim Scott, um, there's a distinction. You know, Cohesive teams are open, flourishing teams are candid. And there's another topic on itself, but when we talk about candor, candor is about caringly coming in conflict and challenge and criticism. And this is why it feels quite paradoxical. There has to be an attention in functioning, in flourishing collaborative teams because they're coming caringly. If we think about this, caring, caring criticism, my intent is to help you learn uncaring criticism, my intent is to weaken you. And this is so, so fundamental to the transitioning from a cohesive functioning team to a collaborative flourishing team is the relationship we come and the the shift in our relationship with challenge, conflict, and criticism. In caringly conflicting with you, my intention is to deepen our awareness of alternatives. An uncaring conflict, my intention is just to shut you down. Yeah, really
0: good, Bernard. There's a lot there, so I want to summarise back a little bit so the audience have got something that they can grab onto. So the four types of teams. The combative team, where people are just fighting against each other. The floundering team, where there's competition for voice and where there's a bit of one-upmanship within the team. A functioning team is one of harmony, where everyone's walking towards a common goal and they're supporting each other and they're getting there, but there's... It's almost more like one voice. And then a flourishing team is one that embraces diversity of voice with high but respectful candor where people can openly share their thoughts and where, where a functional team might get you to a goal. A flourishing time team might get to get you to a goal that you didn't even think of before you had the conversation. So a functioning team is going to harmoniously play very well on, a, on this playing field a flourishing team might invent a new playing field of new discovery and go on to change the world. How does that sit with you?
1: Beautifully put, Mick. Beautifully put. Um, yeah. Love how you've, you've brought that together. And again, you know, in reality, what we do, we, we meander between typically floundering, functioning and functioning. It's but the point here is that this is something that got me to write this book. And what I refer to as the 80-60-20 paradox. You know, Why is it that 80% of leaders claim to be spending 60% of their time in teams, yet only 20% of the time are they flourishing? And the possibility, and this is so possible, but it's hard work. Can you imagine if we flourished for 40% of the time? Imagine what would be possible. This is not it's, 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 it's unrealistic and I'm not suggesting anyone believes it, that we can flourish 100% of the time. No, we're human beings. But can you imagine just flourishing for 40% of the time? And that is so possible, but it takes a huge amount of commitment and effort and energy.
0: I'm going to say it requires a lot of intentionality on behalf of the leader and it and requires that the main role at that point is to create the environment where people can flourish.
1: This is interesting. Another distinction. In a cohesive functioning team, there's typically one leader in the room and that's the leader. In a collaborative flourishing team, there are eight to ten leaders in the room. So it's not dependent on the CEO or it's dependent on the leadership, not the leader.
0: This is really important, I think. I'm thinking about the work of Otto Sharma here right now. And if the leader, just to use that term for a moment, is practicing deep listening, but the people in the team are not, you're still not going to get there.
1: Well, it's going to be a lot harder. You you may, but it's it's going to take more effort and and time and energy.
0: All right. Very good. Now, tell me about the five disciplines of a high-performing team.
1: Yeah. So because flourishing teams that are collaborative, the distinction here is uncompromising commitment to the embodiment and embedding of these disciplines. So the first is what I refer to the discipline to discover. And what I mean by that is discovering the mandate. I come back to this distinction. A team is in service of its stakeholders. So what do the stakeholders, who are they? Let's first of all establish that. And what is the mandate they've commissioned the team with? And the the questions we discover is what are they appreciating about the team? What are they finding difficult in their relationship with the team? And what are they looking for the team to change? I cannot tell you how more often the mandate is assumed, but not necessarily known. That's the first. That's the essence. Then the, the second discipline, and typically we work in the sequence. Once we we understand the mandate, we move into the second discipline, and that is the discipline to declare. And what I mean to declare, the declaration of the purpose of the team. Why does this team exist? For, for what sake is this team coming to being? What's the cause? It serves greater than itself that doesn't answer the question, what does the team do? It answers the question, why does this team exist? And, And that's fundamental because to move towards a collaborative flourishing team is at its essence because everyone shares a common understanding of its purpose. Then we move into what I refer to as the third discipline, discipline to design And that's essentially designing our culture, our ways of working. How do we want to engage and relate with one another when teaming together and apart? What are our ways of working? How do we show up with one another? And again, here we look at um, this is the I I stand on the on the shoulders of giant singers, but but teams rise and fall on the quality of their working relationships. And the, the work of Gloria Kelly, the eight elements of effective relationships are where we explore each, the respect, the trust, the moods, the appreciation, the quality of conversation, the alignment. So when I talk about designing, it's how do we, another distinction in a flourishing team is nothing is undiscussable. So how do we show up in creating a safe space to create, to discuss what is difficult to discuss? Once we've moved in through designing our ways of working, then, then we only move deliberately to the discipline four, which is to deliver. And in this context, we, what are those two, three collective performance goals? we hold ourselves individually and collectively accountable for that we can only achieve working interdependently. It's very rarely happened, Mick, that I ask of a team to write down the team's collective goals individually, and they all align. Very rare. And this is, again, this distinction because in the absence of clarity around the collective goals, all I have is focusing on what I can control, not what we collectively looking to contribute. And the fifth discipline and Here's the little, I guess, the gem in this, and it's the discipline to develop. And this is about the responsibility each team member takes for their own learning, growth and success. And in the assessment I have, there's an assessment that we do at the outset of a team against these five disciplines. And then we look to assess them 12 months and then 24 months after to see where the gaps have closed. But it's quite interesting the the scores on this fifth discipline to develop, the scores on that discipline have the highest predictive validity of a team's potential to transition to flourish. So, what that means, teams that are open to learn with and from one another, they're open to give and receive feedback, they're open to admit to mistakes, they open To share learning are teams that have the greatest potential to transition to flourish. So that is, in essence, the five disciplines that are integral to the commencement and the sustainability to move into that space of flourishing and being more of a a high-performing collaborative team.
0: This is really powerful stuff, Bernard. I'd I'd love to attempt to package that up a little bit and see how we go. My takeaways. So I'm hearing take the time to get back in contact with who your stakeholder is. Do you really know who your stakeholder is? Do you know what problem you're solving for them? And from there, purpose can start emerging. And the purpose can emerge in, why is this important? What would happen if we didn't do it? Why us? Why this particular team, right? So why is this important? Why us? From there, you can start working out, well, what kind of culture do we want around here? How will we work together? How will we treat each other? How will we have the culture where people can talk about things very openly with high candor, et cetera, et cetera. And part of that, how will we work together also feels like maybe some trust building at that point. So building trust between the, the two. Then there's the deliver. And many organizations start with deliver, by the way, uh, Bernard, but, but then there's the deliver. How are we going to do this? How are we going to do it? But What I heard from you is how are we going to do it together? What is our delivery that brings together all of those superpowers of everyone for the collective performance? And then the last one was develop how are we going to learn and grow together as a unit so that every day we get 1% better or whatever the right measure is that you want to go for. How are we going to not just learn individually, how are we going to learn and grow together? How's my summary?
1: Wonderful, wonderful. The interesting thing is, and to your point is, So often there's this sort of seduction to start on discipline four, deliver. that's where groups start, because there's no need to share common purpose because there isn't one. Uh, there's no need to discover the mandate because I determine the mandate, not the, not the stakeholder. There's no need to design our culture because we work independently. Um, so it's it's often it's just when you observe this, it's like bees to a honeypot. Let's talk about the goals. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, how do you expect to get a better result before first investing in shifting the quality of the relationship to, to get a better result as a team? You first got to shift the, the quality of the relationship and discipline one, two, and three are essentially about shifting our way of being together. When we shift our way of being together, it profoundly impacts our way of doing together. To get a better result, we have to shift the quality of the relationship in the team. Teams rise and fall on the quality of their working relationships. move Work the other way around. It, it, it just doesn't.
0: <clears throat> We've brought up relationship quite a lot so far, do you believe that this is the reason why emotional intelligence is now so key? It's not not just about the intellectual way we're going to work together, but also the emotional way that we're going to work together.
1: This goes to the essence. And, you know, you you can appreciate, you know, emotional intelligence. And I'm so eternally grateful for the the Daniel Goleman's and, and so, so many others. But I think emotional intelligence has missed something here. Because what we're really talking about is mood intelligence, mood awareness. If we think about this, and this is another subject all on itself. I come back to the three domains of human existence, language, mood, and body. And language and mood happen in body. We are inescapably emotional beings. We are never not in mood. M- moods are our predispositions for action. That, that's all it is. So, they pre- so what does that mean? Well, in a mood of frustration with you, it's neurologically, physiologically impossible. In my mood of frustration with you, To be open and curious to what you think. I may ask you, Mick, what do you think about this? The other conversation in my head is, I couldn't give a damn what you think. So, you know, and life puts us in a mood. We we, we can't control our moods. We can only manage our mood. You, You know, it's so interesting. People say, no, let's keep emotions out of this. Well, that's like saying, I've got a better idea. Let's take our head off our shoulders and then go into the meeting. You cannot take your emotions out of it. What we're actually saying, let's bring a mood and emotions that serve us. So one of the eight elements of um, collaborative teams is they are deeply aware of the mood they need to bring. Because at times it's important we bring a mood of anxiety to focus attention. It's important at times we bring a mood of curiosity to expand the thinking. So the other distinction of of high-performing collaborative teams They bring an enormous amount of mood literacy and mood awareness and mood management because laundering teams typically are in moods of frustration, annoyance and resentment and anger and anxiety. We cannot move above the line to moods of acceptance, ambition and curiosity and wonder. So that's what moves us above the line to function and flourish. We first got to shift our mood.
0: It's really powerful, uh, Bernard, and it comes back to intentionality, but I'll take a step back for a second. I think everyone in the audience will resonate with what you're saying. You're not going to be receptive to someone if you're not in a receptive mood. If you've got something else buzzing in your brain, you're not ready to listen. You might say that you're ready to listen, but you're not really receptive
1: to what they're saying. so true, Mick. And and you know, this is the other thing, and and I've just read probably the most profound book on call it Emotional Intelligence. It's by Miriam Greenspan, The Wisdom of Dark Emotions. She talks about the alchemy of grief, fear, and despair. It is profound. The sp- M- moods, moods are signposts. There's no such thing as a negative and positive mood. Moods are are helpful, resourceful until they're not I mean, living in a mood of curiosity 24-7 is not going to be helpful Living in a mood of anxiety And just like the six linguistic acts There's six primary moods of life Another day we'll come back to those But my point here is when it's natural and normal You and I are going to go through anxiety uh, Curiosity, resentment, acceptance, ambition this. In the next hour, we're going to flow through those moods. The point here is in my mood of frustration with you, what is it signposting me to? If you think about this, the mood of frustration in my frustration with you, it's signposting to me feeling not heard and understood by you. <laughs> How does it serve me being controlled by the frustration? Let me go to the assessment. Mick, I don't think you understand what I mean. I don't feel you listening to me. And that's when we move toward the frustration, not turn our back on it, move toward it. And by facing it, in other words, by saying, Mick, I don't think you're getting me. And I'm finding this so frustrating because you keep coming back to X and I'm trying to share with you why I'm seeing this differently.
0: So very good. Look, moods or emotions, whichever way we talk about it, they are trying to tell us something. They're either trying to tell us about a met need or an unmet need. That a happy, happy mood is trying to reward you for whatever you just did so that you do it again sometime. And then a, uh, a less happy mood, let's say, is going to be flagging to you that, hey, I need some attention here. I've got an unmet need. I'm not feeling heard. I, I don't feel freedom right now. I don't feel love and belonging. I feel under threat. Whatever the case may be, is go- is going to shift that mood. So listen to what it's telling you and address it.
1: C- correct. You know, the psychological safety is often around you know, the, the mood of anxiety. Is when do we feel psychologically unsafe? Is it manifests in a mood of anxiety? What is anxiety? Signposting us to. It's signposting to my fear. I'm going to come to harm that and I I don't feel I'm going to be able to deal with whatever this harm may be, real or imagined. So let's stay there.
0: So let's unpack it a little bit further and then go with this definitions that you're using around mood. We've spoken a lot about the self and then in a team, it's about the relationships. So I feel like it's still the same stages. We still need to be self-aware. We still need to Self-manage, but self-manage is a proactive thing. It's not a bottling up. It's not a suppression. It's a self-management. Is a proactive activity. Self-motivation. How do I get this mood to work for me instead of against me? Empathy. What is the mood of the other people that I'm interacting with right now? And then, how do we turn that into a relationship? Of I'm going to say, Sawa bano ubuntu. I see you, you see me, and and we co-create together.
1: You know, this is so, so interesting, Mick, because another one of the eight elements of effective working relationship, and I've expanded on Gloria Kelly's model because five of these elements relate to our way of being together and three of them relate to our way of doing together. I can't coordinate action with you unless I feel respected and trusted by you. One of the the five elements to our way of being together is what we refer to as concerns, right? If we think about this, part of our human beingness is you and I are never not in concern. And, and what I mean by that, we're never not thinking, speaking, listening, acting, from what's important to me that could go better. It's not going as well as I would like. Now it could be in yours and my relation, or it just could be, you know, something, you know, external to our relationship. I'm just deeply concerned that health of my business will never, never be the same after COVID. Whatever it might be. For well, you and I to have an effective relationship means that we feel our concern. Concerns are understood and listened to. I don't bring them to you because you can solve them for me. No, 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 no. Right now, and, and this has been such a key point in helping teams transition through the last two, three years, is that more concerns were unspoken about than spoken about. And when we talk about psychological safety, it's creating a space to feel our concerns are legitimized, not judged, and are brought, not with the intent to have others solve them. No, no, no. Brought with the intent to simply be understood. There's a
0: really powerful one there. I think I'd love to give this tip to the audience right now from what I'm taking from you, because it's a two-way street, Bernard. You want to be seen. You want to be heard. The person that you talk to wants to be seen, wants to be heard. So the tip I want to give people, whether it's a, a conflict in the workplace or a conflict in your loving relationship, if you're having an argument, the probability that the person will collaborate with you towards a common solution dramatically increases as soon as they feel like they've been seen and they've been heard. So sometimes you just need to take turns and go, right, here's my concerns. This is where I'm coming from. And then, sorry to say it, just shut up for a bit and let them also, or, or it could be the other way around you can let them go first, but just shut up and let them be seen and heard for a while. And once they get it off their chest a little bit, then you can go, right, now, what are we going to do about it?
1: Yeah, b- beautiful, Mick. And you know, if we think about the essence of siabona, I'm not just seeing you with my eyes. I'm seeing you with my ears. I'm seeing you with my heart. And what I mean by that is, you know, I see you and by seeing you, I bring you into being. When I see what's of concern to you, I bring you into being. Not, not just when I see you with my, when I understand you, I bring you into being.
0: Brilliant. That's it. Nailed it. All right, Bernard, this has just been amazing. We've been through so much ground uh, on individuals and then through to teams and then a little bit back to r- the the relationships, the individual relationships within those teams. It's been a hell of a journey today. I've absolutely loved this discussion. I'm going to take us now to our rapid fire round. Bernard, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20?
1: Yeah. I think what, what comes to mind when I think about that is- if no, now, nah, if I gave myself, you know, my 20-year-old self advice, it's just do the work you love with the people you like in the way you want.
0: Yeah, nice. Really great advice. There's something there for everyone for sure. What's your favorite book?
1: Ooh, the, the, you know, so many, I find this so hard to answer. The, the one that came to mind, uh, that the first that came to mind was the Power of now, nah by Eckhart Tolle. I just remember years ago, and this was probably 20 years ago when I read that for the first time. It's a book that, that had profound, profound impact on me. He is certainly one of my uh, spiritual teachers.
0: Very good. All right, what's your favorite quote?
1: I love the quote from Maya Angelou, the the American philosopher who said, people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but never forget how you made them feel.
0: thousand percent. it's one of my favorites as well. Love it. And finally, there's there's going to be people in the audience. I mean, wonderful conversation, so informative. There's going to be people that want to know more, either about your books or about your services. How do people find you and get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, just literally jump onto to the website, uh, www.bernardismitt.com. Call me even easier, 0414-654-437. Um, you know, I've got a, a little mini quiz, team quiz on, on the website. It uh, takes you 15 seconds and it'll just give you a very high level little insight into where's your team right now. Um, but, but love, who, who, you know, Mick, thank you so much for this opportunity. I've I've loved speaking with you and I I hope your audience have found this of of value and um, look forward to engaging with whoever would want to continue the conversation.
0: So we'll put those uh, links in the show notes as well, Bernard, and I will say absolutely they would have. I've learned so much today. I'm sure the audience has as well. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for listening to the leadership project at mickspears.com a huge call out to faris Sudeik for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at tlp Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to the Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.